you're in with the ghost of radio and welcome back to this our shared podcast where we get down to the business and the pleasure of mid-century horror radio hope you are ready around this cauldron filled with episodes ready to dive in to listen in our own ways and means to come back here hit some clips discuss make sense enjoy that's always the target. So let's try it out. Okay. This week we are going to listen to William and Mary from The Price of Fear. Ah, yes, our old friend, Vincent Price, coming back to join us around this cauldron. Had he ever left? With the episode William and Mary, which may be the second episode of the series, I think so. First or second, so an early one. Go off to the internet if you dare. Type in relicradio.com or archive.org for the internet archive, and you will find this episode pretty quickly. Or go to your non-tracking search engine and type in Price of Fear Radio single episodes. And you will get there and soon you will be listening. Now, I must warn you, I remember from my ghosting. It's so, it's very strange. It's a bit haunted. I guess we should embrace it. Sometimes when you listen to this episode, it is just fine. And sometimes when you listen to it, the audio has a weird, it's clear until someone starts speaking. And then there's just a in the background. Got a deal. Don't know why. Price of Fear usually didn't have this problem. This one does. Maybe the source of that interference will become clear to you at the end of the episode. Oh, maybe we know exactly who is interfering with our listening. Only one way to find out. Off you go. See you soon. All right, we are all back from listening to William and Mary from The Price of Fear. And what did you make of it? <sighs> Price of Fear. You know he did not make many episodes of this show, and most of them are pretty good. There's a lot that Price of Fear has in common with Agatha Christie stories. She is very formulaic. You know what you're going to get. The same types of characters in the same types of situations over and over and over again. A mix of Americans and Europeans on a holiday somewhere exotic. Or a family scene. Like You're not going to be surprised. But where Price of Fear strides away from Agatha Christie is that it was usually really good. <laughs> so I think this episode is pretty good. Although the note of horror that comes at the end is standard price of fear. We've talked about this. We have to say it again. How could I have neglected so far? Vincent Price always participates in these stories, either he is directly involved in them, like he's a lead player, like he is in this one. Or it's a story that's told to him by somebody. So he is always a bit culpable for what happens in the story. This is another price of fear, where something incredibly horrible 
is going to go on happening, and he is doing nothing to stop it, right? This reminds us in a dreadful way of speciality of the house. Specialty of the house from Price of Fear, where the worst thing just about is happening, and he tells us about it, and he just says, what evs? Not going to step in to do anything to stop it. He is the treehouse of horror on The Simpsons when the woman who played Xena, the warrior princess, was in one of the little vignettes where she was kidnapped by a man who collects action figures. And when Bart and Lisa are dealing with her, they're always, she's constantly throughout the episode saying, I told you, I'm not Xena. I'm Lucy Lawless. I'm not Xena. Finally, at the end, she picks the kids up and just flies into the air with them. And Lisa says, Xena can't fly. And she says, I keep telling you, I'm not Xena. I'm Lucy Lawless. Leading you profitably to think about the fact that Lucy Lawless, the actor, can fly. That's how Vincent Price is here. Oh, I'm just Vincent Price, the actor you know so well. And oh, yes, I make horror pictures, but they're schlocky and I admit it. And I just do it because it lets me travel. (laughs) I'm a likable, gentlemanly guy. I'm a regular guy just like you, except that I either participate in or just let go, observed and unreported, tremendous horrors. (laughs) He will say, look, I'm not a mad scientist. That's just a role I play in the picture business. I'm Vincent Price, the guy who witnesses Lots of deep down horror that I never lift a finger to stop. We get both of those in this episode at the end, and it really comes down to one tiny word, one word that makes this go from bad to worse. So let's jump in. Let's get our minimal intro to The Price of Fear, which as usual, we will have to stop on a dime because he always would go right into the story. The Price of Fear Brought to you by Vincent Price Hello, I'm so happy you're with us again this story I called William and Mary. Oh, that high-pitched sound as if someone in the ghost's abode were vacuuming in the background. Somebody has a canister vacuum going on behind Vincent Price, I guess. They're upstairs in the bedroom cleaning up. We have the story begin as it so often does, where Vincent Price runs into an old friend. Oh, he runs into an old friend, and sometimes he will reference things that places he actually lived in his actual life, just to blur that line a little more. Oh, he realizes his old friend Mary is living just a little ways away from him, doesn't know her husband really well, but he gets word that the husband has died and left him something. So he shows up to hear the reading of the will. And as he's sitting there listening to the lawyer drone on, we get his flashback to establish the character of William as a distinctively unpleasant one. 
As I sat in that rather dreary little office, I found myself staring at Mary. To say that I was shocked by the change in her appearance would be to understate the case. When I first knew her, she had been a lively, pretty girl. Now she had developed a sullen, resentful air, and her whole face gave the impression of having slowly but surely sagged to pieces through years and years of joyless marriage to her husband, William. At first they had been happy enough, but then, as William grew older, he developed a kind of cruel, nagging irritability, which Mary had at first tried to dissuade, then to combat, and finally to accept in silence. I remembered the occasion of our last meeting. Mary and I were sitting in the Pearl's flat, waiting for William to return from a lecture. We sat chatting a bit and that, and I remember I had offered her a cigarette, which she had accepted and lit without thinking. Oh, what have you done? I shouldn't be sitting, you know. William disapproved. In fact, between ourselves, he disapproves of most things these days. He's changed a lot, you know. He's become almost a caricature of a peevish, pedantic don. I'm surprised you hadn't noticed it. Really, Mary, you exaggerate, I'm sure. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm embarrassing you. You are also embarrassing me, my oh, dear. William. Continually refusing to obey my request concerning your smoking. William, uh, I'm sorry. I didn't see you coming. That's blatantly obvious. Otherwise, you'd hardly be smoking a cigarette and discussing me as though I were a delinquent child. It's really my fault. I, I was asking oh, Mary... Oh, need to be gallant, old man. Mary, it seems, has developed a martyr complex, which can only be alleviated by the consumption of endless numbers of cigarettes. God's sake, must you behave like this in front of friends? Why the hell do you object to my smoking anyway? Afraid I'll get cancer? No, it's not that. Then why can't I smoke? Because I disapprove, that's why. You disapprove of so many things, William. Cigarettes, lipstick, alcohol, children. Especially children. Oh, yes, especially children, right? And the way children start out as babies. Ooh, this is the deep down horror that we can't quite bear to get to until we have to get to it. So let's continue on. This is how he remembers William being needlessly, purposelessly cruel. Suddenly he dies. We're all celebrating, except, oh, except that he has made sure that she's not going to get away that easily. There's a long, long letter, a thick envelope for her to read when she gets home. So she races home and, of course, insists that Vincent be there with her as she sits with trembling hands, knowing that there can't be anything good in this letter. When we arrived at the Pearl's house, Mary led me straight through to the living room. I remember she didn't even stop to move her coat. As soon as we were settled, she took out the envelope the solicitor had given her and drew out fifteen or so closely written sheets. Slowly, she reached into her handbag, took out her spectacles and put them on. Then, holding the pages high in front of her, she began to read aloud. This note, my dear Mary... It's entirely for you, and will be given to you shortly after I am gone. It is nothing but an attempt on my part to explain exactly what Dr. Landy is going to do to me. I knew it would be something like this. 
How could he? Mary, what's the matter? You, you've gone quite pale. Who is this Dr. Landy? What, what did he do to him? I'll be right. Here, you take the lesson. Read it to me, please. It will make it easier. Hearing all this from a first Very well, my dear, if you want me to, but I... I... Please. Well, of course. Let's just take a moment above the vacuum cleaner sound to appreciate Vincent Price's voice. It is particularly good in this episode, especially from this point onward. By the time he's narrating the end, he has got the most seductive voice in the world. <sighs> it's, it's unexpected. That guy could pour it on. Now he is going to read our flashback to how William decided to ruin Mary's life by extending his own afterlife. And the doctor friend in this is just hilarious. He is a focused cricket. He knows exactly what he would like to do. And all sorts of humane considerations are so out of the question that he can even make William Pearl look like someone who's very concerned with being a humanitarian, with with what's decent and human feeling. <laughs> That's just how excitedly, happily out of it this guy is. William, my boy, this is perfect. You're just the one I want. Hello, John. Well, now, in a few weeks' time, you're going to be dead. Correct? Do you believe you'll go to heaven? I doubt it. Well, what's all this about? Hardly a good bedside manner. In a few weeks, you're going to be dead. Sorry. But look, would you be prepared to consider a proposition? I haven't the faintest idea what you're talking about. I'm serious. Oh, go on. I've very little to lose by listening. On the contrary, you've a great deal to gain, especially after you're dead. Or maybe we should say that's just how happily into it he is. Yes, he has got the usual textbook plan to keep someone's brain alive after they are dead and having it living in a basin, the kind of basin you would wash your hands in when you go to a, an old pre-indoor plumbing home and it's got a pitcher for water in a big basin. This was, of course, the topic of so many schlock horror movies, including ones that Vincent Price did. The writer clearly had to be aware of this. The old get a table, cut a hole in the table, put your head in the table, and then get a basin with the bottom cut out and put it over and you've got a head staying alive in a table. <laughs> it's your head on a basin. They tried to dress this up with a lot of science talk that is just beyond tedious. So we are just going to move on from that to the doctor's excited recitation of just everything he's going to be able to do once William's body is dead. Think of it, man. Your own brain. In perfect shape. It's crammed full of a lifetime of learning. Yet soon it's going to have to die along with the rest of your body. It's repulsive. What possible use can there be in keeping my brain alive if I couldn't talk or see or hear or feel? I believe you would be able to communicate with us. But let me explain a bit more. Girl, he's not explained that part in the long bit of rigmarole nonsense that comes next. So your brain is alive. You're able to think your great thoughts. But you are not able to speak. So how on earth are you going to be able to communicate these to anybody? 
That's the main question, right? Sure, we all want to stay alive forever so that we can keep thinking about things. <laughs> That's the premise, that the intelligent person never wants to be able to stop thinking about things and coming up with wonderful ideas. How is he going to be able to express those once he is just a brain? He tries one more time asking this question, but is given the roundabout by the doctor who doesn't seem to have a ready answer. You have a dead body and a living brain. Uh, but would it function? Oh, my dear William, how should I know? I can't even tell whether it would ever regain consciousness. And if it did, uh, that would be fascinating. Lying there with all your thinking processes working beautifully and your memory as well. And not being able to see, feel... Here or smell. Oh, now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm going to leave one of your optic nerves intact, as well as the eye itself. Yes, and then they do an even more schlocky description that is meant to make you say, Oh, gross! About an eye floating on the water on a stem. Like, oh, this is real. It would make Hammer Horror blush. So... William tries one more time about how is it that I'm expressing my thoughts? And the answer is super unconvincing and uninspiring. But how could I communicate with you? By means of a sensitive piece of apparatus known as an encephalograph, which records the brain's electrical and chemical discharges on a graph. But do you honestly believe that when my brain is in that Basically, my mind will be able to function, that I shall be able to think and reason as I do now. I don't see why not. It's the same brain. It's undamaged. You'd be living in an extraordinarily pure and detached world. No worries, or fears, or pains, or hunger, or thirst. And for you, William, a doctor of philosophy, it would be a tremendous experience. You'll be able to reflect upon the ways of the world with a, a with a detachment and a serenity that no man has ever attained before. Great thoughts and solutions might come to you, great ideas that could revolutionize our way of life. Mm. But look here, I'm not asking you to make up your mind immediately. Sleep on it. Perhaps you would give me a ring tomorrow. I'll be at home. Yes. All right. I'll think it over and let you know. Lines on a graph? <laughs> I'm sorry. And how do the lines on the graph get translated into words on a piece of paper somehow so that you'll know what I am thinking? William may be a, a philosophy doctorate, doctor of philosophy, but he's not perceptively questioning this. I don't need to sleep on it to have that question. You end up with a lot of lines on a graph. So do you also have some computerized robot that can tell people what those lines on the graph mean? It is full of holes. We are meant to overlook that, I suppose, and get swept up in the manic glee of the doctor. Oh, don't answer now. <laughs> I'll call you tomorrow morning first thing so you can tell me yes. Well, of course, William does tell him yes, because his vanity is orweening, as Shakespeare might say. 
So we come to the end of this long, ridiculous part of the story with Vincent giving the last chilling coda. P.S. Be good when I am gone. Do not drink. Do not smoke. Do not buy a television set. And incidentally, now that I have no further use for it, I suggest you have the telephone disconnected. This reminds us strongly of the Twilight Zone episode from 1963 called Uncle Simon, where a young, put-upon, browbeaten, not young anymore, middle-aged woman, her uncle who ruled her life finally dies, but he has built a robot of himself to keep bossing her around. So when she comes home from a shopping spree after she thinks she's finally free, there's robot Uncle Simon to keep his foot on her neck. Well, that's the plan that William has tried to put into place here for Mary. And she's so beaten down that, like the woman in Uncle Simon, she's just going to go along with it. So as commanded to by the letter, she goes with Vincent and his voice to the laboratory, to the laboratory, of course, to visit her husband in his brain basin. They manage in this scene to at once make it, you get a sense of the horror of eternal life. If this were really to work, and this is where William would remain conscious for the rest of his life, what a nightmare. Oh, what a nightmare that would be. Where is he supposed to get input for new ideas? Where is he supposed to be able to take in information? He can't hear. He has one eye. Can he read with it? Would someone have to stand and hold reading material up to him? I mean, it's a nightmare. It's a prison. He's in a terrible prison. And you get the feeling that maybe, just maybe, he accepted this whole cockamamie scheme because he knew it wouldn't really work for him to keep living the way he wanted to. He knew he'd be in a kind of prison, but who would be in a worse prison? Oh, it would be Mary, wouldn't it? And maybe that would be worth it just to keep her in that bondage. Let's go into that laboratory and get that sense of, oh, it's just a heavy heaviness that settles upon us when we go in here. It's just bad in every way for everyone. That's pretty all-encompassing. A lot is accomplished in this very small scene. It's in here. I wouldn't go too close, yes. Until you get used to it. The doctor has ushered us into a small, square room. On a high white table in the center of the room was a biggish white enamel bowl, about the size of a wash basin, with half a dozen or so plastic tubes coming out of it. These tubes were connected with a whole lot of glass piping, and I could see the blood flowing from the heart machine. It was this machine which made a saw rhythmic pulsing sound. He's in here, in this bowl. Come a little closer. Oh, don't be afraid. That's right. 
Now, you see this small oval capsule floating on liquid in the bowl? That's the eye in there. Can you see it? Yes. Good. Take your time. As far as we can tell, it's still in perfect condition. It's his right eye, and the plastic container has a lens on it, similar to the one that he used in his own spectacles. At this moment, he's probably seen quite as well as he ever did. Oh, are you feeling all right, Mrs. Pearl? I think so. Good. Then we'll go forward a little more, and you'll be able to see the whole thing. There you are. That's William. The doctor led Mary forward until she could see right down into the basin. I followed, feeling somewhat nervous, I must confess. William's brain was far larger than I had imagined it would be, and darker in color. With all the ridges and creases running over the surface, it reminded me of nothing so much as a large, pickled walnut. Okay. We leave behind their attempts to use technology in any faintly believable way to the real heart of the story, which is the role Mary is now meant to play. The role of slave that she is meant to play to this thing in this basin. That's the horror of the story. And the way the doctor just assumes this, oh, you're going to have to come right over here. Now look down into the eye that's floating in the water. Look at it. Smile. Say something nice. They're really trying to put the manacles around her. And it's really deeply upsetting because she is kind of letting herself be the lamb led to the slaughter in this scene. And it's very effective. Now, Mrs. Pearl, you'll have to lean over and put your face right above the eye. He'll see you then, and you can smile. I'd say a few nice things as well. Maybe he won't actually hear them, but I'm sure he'll get the idea. It must have taken tremendous courage for Mary to lean over that baby and stare into the eye that had once been her husband. The eye itself was bright and stared at her with a peculiar fixed intensity. There was no doubt that it was watching her, and the small needle on the nearby control panel, which I took to be the encephalograph, flicked as Mary spoke, while at the same time the machine emitted a curious clicking sound. Hello, dear. It's me, Mary. How are you, dear? Are you feeling all right, William? I got your letter, dear, and came at once to see how you were. Dr. Landry says you're doing wonderfully well. They're doing everything possible to take care of you, dear. You seem fine. Really, you do. That's excellent, Mrs. Pearl, excellent. Yes, excellent for everyone, perhaps, except for her, except now. We are rolling through to the ending, and I'm playing it in full because it's of a piece, and you can't really break it up. You wouldn't want to. This ending is chilling because of what she says at the very start of it, where she says that his eye looks kind of helpless and appealing and soft, like a soft expression that he never had in life. Why, 
He looks to her like a baby. Like a baby. Now we remember her saying that he wouldn't let her have children. And that made her very upset. And we think, oh, is this yet another episode where a woman goes crazy because she couldn't have a baby? You know that if women don't have babies, they go insane. Is that what's happening? Because we expect her to go crazy at this point. But, oh, we find out it's much, much worse than that. And that is the sticking horror at the end of this episode. She perceives him to be as vulnerable and helpless as a baby. She intends to torture him. And the fact that she thinks of it as torturing a baby, that is shocking. That's a level we are not expecting, perhaps, from a little half hour of mid-century horror radio. That's what she is picturing. He is a baby. He's her baby now. The man who wouldn't let her have a baby is now her baby who she's going to torture. That is deep and ugly and surprising. Yes, but this is the price of fear, and they were not afraid to go to some very dark places. This is the horror that Vincent Price is fully aware of, as he makes very clear at the end, that he is not doing one thing to stop. For him, it's only the question of, will she one day become bored with it and stop? But he doesn't think so. Thinking of him as the baby she never had is what gives her the idea to torture him. And that's as bad as he gets. Whoa, let's listen, let's roll through, and let's just be ready for this if we can. No, I'm not at all sure that I don't prefer him as he is at present. I believe I could live very comfortably with this kind of week. I could cope with this one. Quiet, isn't he? Naturally, he's quiet. Doctor... I do believe I'm beginning to feel the most enormous affection for him. Does that sound clear? I think it's understandable. He looks so helpless, lying there in the basement. He's like a baby. Exactly like a little baby. There. From now on, Mary's going to look after you. All by herself. When can I have him back home, Doctor? Oh, uh, he couldn't live in Woo. I don't see why not. But this is an experiment, Mrs. Bell. It's my husband, Doctor. Uh, but... Uh, it is my husband, you know. <laughs> That's rather a tricky point. Perhaps it would be better if we were to discuss this matter more fully in my office. I mean it. I want him back. Mary and the doctor have become so engrossed in the struggle for possession of William, or rather what remained of him, that they had forgotten my presence completely. I I watched him fall. The doctor was studying Mary as she calmly put a cigarette between her lips and lit it. 
He obviously regarded her as a very queer fish indeed, even allowing for the bizarreness of the situation. Mary walked over to the window, apparently quite calm and relaxed, puffing a cigarette. Then she walked back to the table and looked into the basin once more. Mary's leaving me now, sweetheart. Don't you worry about a single thing. You understand? I'm going to get you home again. Just as soon as I possibly can. And... At this point, Mary paused and put a cigarette to her lips, intending to take a part. Instantly, the eye flashed, and the pupil contracted into a minute black point of distilled fury. At the same time, the needle on the graph jumped alarmed. Mary didn't move for a moment. She stood looking down into the basin, holding the cigarette to her mouth and watching the eye. Then slowly and deliberately, she put the cigarette to her lips, inhaled deeply, held the smoke, then suddenly she released the smoke through her nostrils in two thin jets, which struck the water and billowed out over the surface in a thick blue cloud which completely enveloped the eye. The needle on the grass machine went mad. The doctor, who had been standing with his back to Mary since she crossed to the table, turned suddenly, aware that something had happened, but not knowing what. I think perhaps we'd better leave now. Now, don't look so cross, William. It isn't any good looking cross. Not anymore, dear. Because from now on, my pet, you're going to do exactly what Mary tells you. You understand, William? Exactly what Mary tells you. Mrs. Burke. So don't be a naughty boy again, will you, my pet? Naughty boys are liable to get most severely punished. That's enough, Mrs. Burke. Yes, of course. Goodbye, darling. I'll be back soon. Isn't he sweet? I just can't wait to get him home again. I think it was Bernard Shaw who said, There are two tragedies in life. One is lose one's heart's desire. The other is to gain it. Poor William with his vain dreams of his detached brain solving the world's problems. Is he still alive in his basin, consumed with impotent rage as he views Mary's excesses of tobacco, alcohol, and television? And what of Mary? Can she still be enjoying her protracted revenge for all those years of domestic misery? <laughs> I think she can. For Mary was taught cruelty by an expert. As for myself, nowadays my sleep is undisturbed by thoughts of death and immortality. Although I must confess I have never since been able to wash my hands in an enamel basin without thinking of William and Mary.
And that's all he does. He just thinks about it from time to time. But you don't often wash your hands in these modern days in a wash basin, so he doesn't think of it very often. So maybe that high-pitched whine throughout the background of this entire episode is William desperately, desperately trying to get Vincent to do something, or perhaps trying to get us to do something to kill him, to overturn that basin and end it. No, I think probably William, he would want us to kill Mary. That would be his goal. That is William and Mary from The Price of Fear. And it's a deep one at the end there. It walks a nasty line, but in the end, we give it we give it some props. Now, he's about to, in this outro, describe to you a different episode of which we cannot say the same. That was Vincent Price bringing you The Price of Fear. Also starring in William and Mary were John Barron, Gerard Green, and Hilda Schroeder with Terry Scully. William and Mary was first recounted by Roe Dark, dramatized by Barry Campbell, and produced by John Dyer. like to ponder my for tomorrow night. It takes place in Bavaria, when I went to look over a medieval castle there, and the horrifying events that befell the three tourists and myself when we visited the blood-soaked torture chamber. <laughs> Sounds gruesome, doesn't it? I do hope that that will tempt you to join me tomorrow. Good night. <laughs> Ah, yes, the rarely heard full scream outro of Price of Fear blows, and we're glad we don't hear it very often. It's fitting, though, with that corny scream for the episode he just described. I should make you have to encounter it on your own. I shouldn't even say the name. It's Cat's Cradle from Price of Fear. That's an episode that is ridiculously cruel. It walks that line of sick. I don't think Cat's Cradle is in our cauldron. It's a mixed bag, people. It's a mixed bag. Why do you think I am the ghost of radio? It's because I was out there earning my scars, going from the highs to the lows to the no-goes of this genre years before any of you were born. Thus, I can speak with some authority to all of you out there in Lebanon, Cuyahoga Falls, Valparaiso, and Stratford. (sighs) But I'm happy to share this knowledge with you, even when it means endangering you to the point where you might hear an episode that's not going to sit well with you. All I can say is, you will have the wherewithal to recognize it when you see it, and to walk away. If you want to play it safe, no one would ever describe this cauldron as safe, but It is at least curated, and at least you do have me right there with you and everyone else gathered here. 
to bear you up when things get heavy. So with that good satisfaction in mind, go your way this week. Be safe, be happy, and I'll see you soon. Children, listen, children. <laughs>